Hello listeners and welcome to another episode of Maintenance Disrupted. I'm your host, Steve Doby, and today we welcome Akshay Athalay to the show. He is the host of Reliability It Matters, a new maintenance and reliability podcast. And if you're like me, you love maintenance and reliability podcasts, so check it out. It's There's only a few episodes so far, and they've been really great, and I'm really excited to talk to Akshay. Uh, today we talk about a whole lot of topics. We discuss the fundamentals of you know what we're doing in in our organizations and what we could how we could be doing them better. Uh, so we touch on everything from KPIs to RCM to just data quality and it just we cover a huge range of topics all of which deserve their own episode and really enjoy this conversation. I know you will too. Thanks for listening. Before we get started, here's a message from our sponsor. Hello listeners, this is Steve Doby, host of your Maintenance Disrupted podcast. And this week we have a sponsor, NanoPercise. Did you know that NanoPercise has three plus years experience in the metal sector? And they're doubling down its AI-based solutions deployment across the Asian metal sector. To find out more, contact NanoPercise or visit them at nanoprecise.ai. Welcome, welcome, welcome to another episode of Maintenance Disrupted. I'm your host, Steve Doby. And today I've got a special guest with us today. I've got Akshay. Welcome to the show, Akshay. Thank you so much, Stephen. It's a pleasure to be here. Great. Now, you have recently just started another reliability podcast, which I'm so excited about. Uh, I know the other podcasters as well. We talk all the time. Happy to have you as part of our uh, our weird group of people that really like to talk about maintenance and reliability outside of normal work hours. Um, it takes a special kind of person. I'm, I like to tell people I'm no fun at parties because my hobby and my work are essentially the same thing at this point. <laughs> Before we jump into today's topic, um, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, where, where you've been and what kind of drove you to join the podcasting world? Absolutely. I guess to answer that question, it's a, it's a bit of a two stories to that one. So I started off uh, my career at, at a production facility where we were making carbonated beverages. So it was 375 mil cans, um, alcohol, you know, bottling water and other beverages. And that was my first foray into the world of, I guess, maintenance and production uh, and a little bit of reliability. But my second job after that was at a consultancy called Arms Reliability, where I was working as a reliability engineer on a mine site where they were mining uh, copper, uranium, gold, and silver. That was my real first uh, jump into uh, reliability engineering. So um, that's where I fell in love with everything reliability. Now, as part of the job, we were, we were using a couple of different softwares, Excel for doing a data analysis, and uh, other uh, packages to perform things such as viable analysis or doing um, cost analysis, right? And it always intrigued me to understand how some of these calculations are happening behind the software package, right? You plug in a value, you get a different answer. 
For example, the software will spit out 95% confidence, the reliability is going to be X percentage, right? And I always wondered how, what is happening? And I've always wanted to understand that. So one of my mentors uh, at my current uh, organization, KPMG, I asked him, hey, can you help me out with this? Can you help me understand these complex uh, uh, techniques or methodologies? And he sat down with me, he opened up an Excel spreadsheet and he showed me, hey, if you put this equation here and if you change this random variable, this to this, this is how the equation spits out. And I realized at that moment that he was able to take a very complex uh, methodology or process and made it really simple and easy to understand. And, and that is when I thought to myself, hey, there's a lot of people like me who would be out there wanting to understand and learn more about reliability and just by learning or reading from these textbooks, it's not going to be that easy, right? Because there are so many equations and derivations that you have to go through and understand, and it's hard to make sense of them. And just by uh, simplifying the language uh, of this system, it made it really easy for me to understand what that is. And that was, now that's one part of the reason why and how I decided to start the podcast. And the other one being, uh, there's these professional affiliation that we have here in Australia, similar to SMRP, where people have present case studies on what they've done in the organization. But every time I would attend these webinars, I would come out partially disappointed because they would only talk about the what they've done and not how they've done it, right? Uh, and they would just say, this is what we've done and this is what we've achieved, right? But as a young engineer, for me, it's, I need to know what you've done, how you've made that journey how did you transition from state a to state b so the combination of both of these um led me to start the podcast reliability it matters and that's the whole intention of the objective of the podcast is to take these complex uh, uh principles of engineering reliability engineering and break them down and make it really simple to understand so everyone understands it so that's sort of been our journey from starting the podcast I love it. And, you know, very similar to, I think, what a lot of stories are. It's just, you know, we want to understand how to do things better. What better way to do that than talking to the people who are working in it every day, doing it and applying these principles in different, in different ways at their organizations. Um, and one thing that you said in there that I, that I really like, and, um, it, you know, it comes down to, like, we, we get these jobs in reliability. Um, there are starting to become more like training and university and stuff like that. That's specific to reliability, but it's not widespread. And most people that come into reliability engineering are usually from a mechanical discipline or electrical discipline um, and, and aren't coming through any sort of program. And so you end up becoming called a reliability engineer and you have no idea what you're doing. One of the most fundamental things is is training and getting proper training in reliability and maintenance. And a lot of these companies, you, you bring in a new engineer and you don't actually get trained on it. It's just, here you go, figure it out. You're an engineer, you're supposed to be smart, get it sorted, right? One of our big themes starting in 2022 on Maintenance Disrupted is kind of getting back to basics. And you know, when I think about what the basics and fundamentals of maintenance and reliability are, you know, it's we've got our pillars of those fundamentals. We try to do all these fancy things, um, 
like bringing new sensors, bringing new technology. And we're trying to use that to solve failure modes. When if you actually dive into the problem, you look at the root causes, it's the fundamental that's missing. It's not a sensor that's missing. A lot of this stuff can be resolved by going back to the basics. So as I say that, uh, I'm curious where you see some of the basics missing, some of the fundamentals missing in the reliability world. Um, where do I start? Uh, so <laughs> in my experience, what I've seen so far um, is the indiscriminate use of uh, MTBF as a reliability metric. I think a lot of people, a lot of organizations, even reliability engineers who have been in the industry for years swear by MTBFs. And when you really um, look, dig deep into it and try to understand where this figure has been coming from, and you try, try to understand that, and you, then you re start realizing that there's so many, um, so many aspects of it that people are not capturing understanding of what MTBF really is. Um, at one of my first jobs um, at this bottling facility, we would have, they would proudly present this in, in a, on a screen, MTBF for the day has been this. Right. And then if you ask them, all right, so what has been the performance of the asset for the past five years? I don't know. Uh, that's what its performance has been today. Right. So it's, it's the fundamentals of not understanding the underlying assumptions of some of these reliability metrics that we are using and what are the right ones to use. Uh, and I understand uh, using sensors, everyone wants to move towards IoT 4.0. But without having the fundamentals in place, something as simple as making sure that you're capturing the right kind of data in your CMMS. Some of the organizations don't even have the appropriate CMMS where they're, they're still using free text fields to capture the failure modes. For example, I have come across a lot of failure data where they've, they've said, pump seized. Okay, pump seized. What does that mean? Uh, was there something wrong with the bearing? Was it something wrong with the coupling? What happened, right? And then when you actually dig deep into it, you realize it wasn't even the pump. It was actually the motor that had shot. It was shot in the motor and that's where the pump stopped, right? And so if you're trying to do this fundamental analysis on some of your components and trying to understand the performance, it's just going to be ridiculously hard uh, just trying to understand uh, the aspects of reliability. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I totally agree. It's uh, garbage in, garbage out, right? And if you're not yeah. capturing the data, if what you're putting into your CMMS or whatever tracking system you're using isn't good, how can you expect to have good results from it? And I've seen, I've seen companies that got a CMMS. They were committed to the CMMS, but it didn't have the functionality, functionality they were looking for. And so they spent probably the same amount, if not more, adding in more add-ons and all this other stuff to try and bridge that gap. And it's like, well, is, you know, the, this fundamental thing where we're putting so many different things in place that people um, know what's right, but the ability to do it, the, the software is just not allowing them to do it. So then ultimately everything gets tracked in spreadsheets. And, it does, uh, yes. <laughs> and um, spreadsheets I are great for analysis, but not, uh, they're not a good database. <laughs> Uh, I know uh, we have struggled with multiple thousands and thousands of rows of data, Excel spreadsheets trying to understand because that's where they've captured everything, right? There's 10 Femicas for the same asset sitting with five different people. It's multiple revisions and you end up getting one Femica version of, 
of the system and then you then somebody else says oh i've got an updated version of the same famica and it's completely different right it says there's no traceability but i guess um the point that you made about the garbage in garbage out i think that garbage can still be utilized to an extent i know there's only so much polishing polishing you can do but uh, as reliability engineers, I guess we have to just accept that the data quality can't always be perfect, and we have to start refining it uh, incrementally, step by step. There will eventually come a point where it is polished enough, uh, the Pareto principle, it'll eventually come to the point where you have that 650%, 60%, 70% clarity on your data, just so you can start making some good uh, insights from that. Um, and that is something that I think we do tend to struggle with is that when the moment we see the CMMS data, we say, no, nah, that's crap. We've got to start fresh, right? I think we, we, as engineers, we need to change the way we look at the data that we have. And it is all about uh, going down to your uh, production line or your, where the system is being operated and speak to the operators, right? As, in, as they always say, engineers should walk the line, understand what they're saying, understand how the um, asset is actually performing and what is the operating context for it. And you can even just by speaking to the production operators, you can understand what's, what are the possible failure modes uh, for their asset. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, that's, that's a great point. Like, because um, a good reliability engineer will take ba bad data and do something with it. It's not going to be perfect. Like if the data is mm -hmm. not perfect going in, the results can't be perfect coming out. But there's always something you can do and always a direction to take. Um, and, you know, you have to do lots of analysis, not just on the data as well, but on the failures themselves. Making sure that, you know, when you, you do your teardown of the equipment, that you're actually capturing how it fully failed. And we're not just running off a how somebody thinks it failed. Let, let's get actual proof of what happened. Yeah, I, to I totally agree with what you're saying there. One of the other other areas, we talk, you talked about MTBF, and I, I listened to your episode about the uh, statistics in math or in reliability, and I really enjoyed it. And you mentioned Fred Schinkelberg, which <laughs> uh, I've chatted with Fred before, and he's been on this show a few times. And Fred said something the last time I talked to him, um, about MTBF is came in, came into being when reliability was first started when we didn't have um, spreadsheets and, and tools available to us that we can easily calculate other things and I see MTBF everywhere like it's 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 crazy and that's what gets uh, reported to the CEOs and CEOs of companies and on different assets their critical assets is is this MTBF I'm like, this isn't a relevant measure anymore. Why would you do an average when you can easily do a distribution or something like that, right? And, uh, you know, yeah. as I listened to Fred talk about that, um, as somebody who used to use MTBF, I was like, yes, I'm, I'm doing this wrong. It's time to improve. It's time to do something better. And it, it's so important that we start getting away from that and understand that information behind the metrics. Which kind of leads me to my next question about the metrics. Like we're we rely pretty heavily on, on metrics and something that I've seen that is a fundamental that people miss is actually understanding what the metric is telling you. So availability, you worked in the mining industry, availability is a big measure of performance. Um, 
but the inputs into availability and and what people expect to get out of it are always surprises me. So I don't know about what you've seen out there, but um, whenever I start doing a project or something in, in the mining space, people will ask, well, what's the impact to availability going to be? Like, you know, we've got a fleet of however many hundred trucks. And is it, is this project going to improve availability? And it's a, it's a fine question, but it's not that simple. Now, when you're working with some of these other metrics, like what is your, uh, what's your kind of viewpoint on it? What's, what's your useful metrics that you see and something that's actually meaningful and in, in, in how to use it? I guess going back to the first principles and also playing devil's advocate, advocate for something that you said about using MTBF as a reliability metric, I think it's it's a matter of convenience and ease because it's really relatively easy to calculate. Um, if you was if you were to start start using, say, for example, a viable analysis or viable distribution, I should say, if you uh, tell the CEO that my characteristic life of the asset is six thousand seven hundred hours and my beta or my shape parameter is four, he's going to look at you with funny and say, "What? How does that impact me?" Right. So I guess uh, one thing that I have realized that in order to make make some sense of MTBF as a, per, a metric of reliability, um, I've started throwing in the duration for which it will be applicable it, as, as, a, as a minimum. So I, if, I, if someone asks me, what's the reliability, right? If they don't understand viable uh, distribution of, they're not really savvy with reliability principles, I'll just say it has an MTBF of 6,000 hours and that is valid for two years. Right, so I'm essentially saying that for the next two years, your your failure rate is going to be one divided by six thousand hours. It, it's a constant, uh, that, and I'll say that, but I cannot say that with certainty. There is low confidence because that's, of course, that's not the right metric to use, right? But at least that gives them some sense of how long they can expect the MTBF for. For example, if, if an asset has been just put into service, and I know that there is no infant mortality that's going to happen with it, I'm fairly certain I, I can say that yes. Uh, 15,000 hours for the next two years. That's the MTBF for that asset. Um, I guess that is a, a more useful or that gives you some more insight into the asset's performance rather than using just the MTBF. And going back to your original question of what are the, some of the other metrics that I have seen? So yes, availability and the product throughput. It depends, I guess, uh, the industry that you're in. So for the, the mining mine site that I was in, they were producing copper supports tons per hour of how much copper they were producing. Um, and in order to understand availability, because um, it is, it's an extremely complex system and you're just when you're calculating or looking at the availability of, of the entire site, there's so many different systems and so many multitudes of inputs going in, it becomes harder to capture the overall availability of the system. Um, unless you do a reliability block diagram and you know uh, perform a thorough analysis, but I don't think so uh, as, consultants, when we go to a mine site, they're expecting you to solve all their problems. When you go in, you're looking at a specific section of the facility. For example, you're looking at perhaps all the pumps or one section that does something uh, uh, or impacts the, the process output at the end. So you're quite often, you're just focused on a section of your facility and that's what you're analyzing. So I guess when you do look at the availability uh, as a metric, it is an important one, but I guess you have to look at it in the context 
at which you're working in at the moment. I'm not yeah. sure if that answers the question. Yeah, no, absolutely. And it's a good point because availability is important. It's a, it's a good uh, lagging indicator. Um, I think what we need to focus on more, though, is a lot of the leading indicators. Like something like uh, schedule compliance is, is a, a big impact, especially in mining, where you know, if you miss or you're late on PMs and things like that, that's going to have a downstream effect. Um, and you're going to start to see your availability drop because your schedule compliance was poor a week or two weeks or a month, month beforehand. And so everybody is just so focused on reporting these lagging indicators that we forget about being proactive with our metrics and looking at these leading ones and looking at what we can actually affect today so that those other ones that we're reporting out don't fall behind, don't decrease. You know, we need to fo focus more on the, the leading indicators rather, rather than those lagging indicators because they're going to be what really affects the operations and, and gives us the ability to take action early yep. rather than waiting for availability to drop than trying to bring availability up. It's a lot harder to bring availability up than it is to bring, uh, to, to maintain availability. No, that, that is very true. And uh, I have seen that a lot where people, going back to the same mindset I was working on, so schedule compliance was a big metric that they were reporting on, trying to understand um, how, how efficient are we in performing some of the, the, the maintenance that we have. But in saying that, there's also, uh, it can also be gained to an extent, it depends on the quality of PMs that you have, right? So if you have a PM that has to go and just visually inspect everything, it's going to be a far easier than actually uh, doing some of your uh, condition-based maintenance tasks, right? So I guess when we look at the scheduled maintenance, I think it's, it could be handy to break it down further, I guess. I think uh, the SMRP does have a document where they have some of these uh, metrics or that have benchmarks against them, where they have a condition-based uh, schedule maintenance compliance, uh, preventive uh, maintenance schedule compliance. So I guess rather than just looking at schedule compliance as a whole, I think it, it, it would be worth perhaps splitting it up into two and then looking at them as individuals because I think uh, condition-based maintenance would still give you more value. So I'd rather have my condition-based maintenance or compliance, I should say, uh, at a higher level as compared to just simply looking at um, my the PM compliance activities or tasks that I have. I guess that, that's my, that's one way of looking at it. What do you think? Yeah, absolutely. And it's not just, it's not just one metric that makes the difference. Like if you just track schedule compliance, well, what, what is actually in schedule? Um, I was having this conversation not that long ago. It's, you know, we want to reduce the amount of break and work we're having. And so my first question is, okay, well, what's our time frame of when something's in schedule or out of schedule? And if the answer is three days or one day, or when do you set that schedule is really important because um, if you set your schedule three days in advance, your schedule compliance might be really high, but the reality is you're not getting the benefits from following that schedule because you still don't have enough time to get the parts you need and do all this other stuff, right? Yeah. Um, so it's, it's really important to have these things set up well and understand what, what good looks like. And so talking about the fundamentals, like a lot of companies are tracking and doing a lot of good work with metrics, 
but they set their baseline wrong or what they're measuring against is is not ideal so they need to reset and think about okay what is actually what's going to give us benefit if we're scheduling one week out two weeks out three weeks or or maybe it's a combination thereof where you've got your your four weeks of scheduling and things can be brought in or out but having something locked in um and when we start to look a little more critically at like schedule compliance that's going to have a big impact on so many failure modes that you're seeing out in the field and you're not focusing directly on any one failure mode you're solving a process and a system that's helping you get better at maintenance as a whole and fixing that fundamental to improve equipment. So like a lot, whenever you do a root cause analysis, you end up with a lot of systemic causes or latent root causes that are process related, organizational related. Now, isn't it easier just to start tackling those? Cause you know what they are. You talk to anybody on the floor, you talk to the planners, whatever it is, they know what they are. So why isn't that our first step to go to? Like we've got a lot of fancy math that we can go do on failure histories and stuff like that. But is it is that the right place to start? And it, obviously the maturity of your organization is very dependent on that. So I guess uh, <laughs> um, to answer that question, I think as engineers, we sometimes struggle. It's just a simple uh, way of speaking with different people, right? As engineers, we're so focused on just solving the problem is, all right, give me the data, give me this information. I'm just going to sit on the desktop and try to solve it all on my own. I guess that's what engineers tend to do rather than, as you rightly suggested, you go out, you speak to the people, right? That is something that we quite often miss out on because they truly understand what everything is happening and they might even tell you the solution. You know, I remember uh, at the production facility I was in, the car, the beverage manufacturing, we had this robot sweeper that would sweep the cans. And every now and then, uh, it would not be able to sweep the cans or the layer of cans properly. And we would always struggle because it would always involve a massive cleanup. It would uh, just crush the cans. And one of the operators just said, have you ever considered just moving the sensor just a bit there? So it picks it up just a tad bit late. And we did that. We gave it a try. And fixed it all right otherwise we would have sat there looking at the entire plc programming to see what it's doing and taking the long solution just to come to the same conclusion with what the operator just said in 30 seconds so i guess as engineers we, it's not just the technical aspect of it i think it's also the people aspect of it that you need to go down and speak to your people and understand what the problem is um and um i think yeah that's what i think about that yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. Uh, obviously, I just said it before you started talking as well. So um, like the, you know, we, we definitely do. We put on those those blinders and get so involved in our spreadsheet or whatever it is that we kind of forget to ask the obvious question. Yeah. And that's one of the fundamentals, right, is 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 that input uh, operator driven reliability. Like, What are the people looking at the equipment saying about it? They're the ones who use it every day. They're the ones driving it. They're the ones looking at it. So what do they see that's different? Mm -hmm. uh, to, uh, to add to my previous point, um, we always, you must have heard the saying as well, that culture eats strategy for breakfast. 
no matter how many sensors you have, no matter how many advanced reliability techniques, no matter what software package you have, if you don't have a good culture for reliability, everything's just gonna, going to fall flat on its face eventually, right? So if you don't have that culture where people do want to improve the assets or the systems or the processes that we have, it's all going to just fail eventually. Um, going back to the first principles, um, yeah. quite often something as simple as doing a Fumika, right? It's it, a lot of organizations that they, they do a Fumika, that's what they say. But when you start looking at reading their failure modes and the, the descriptions, it's all over the place. It's, it's a lack of understanding of what a, what a failure mode is or what a failure cause is. And then it's all muddled up. Uh, the understanding of the effects, or, or the point that I'm trying to make is just a simple understanding of what do you want to get out from your Femeca, right? It's people quite often just think that Femeca is a tick in a box. Yeah, we've done it. We've done it on one asset and it can be applicable to all other assets. For example, I've seen this across uh, in my previous works where we've, we've done a Femeca on a pump, a centrifugal pump, and not looking at the operating context. Again, it was all done on desktop. And that has been the same Femeca has been rolled out to all other pumps in the facility, right? Again, not taking into account the operating context of the pumps. One pump is sitting um, in a dusty, dirty environment. One is sitting in an enclosed place. Different failure modes, different probabilities of failure. It's very different the way you would maintain these assets. So that is something that a lot of uh, people struggle with. It's not a one, one size fits all approach. And you said it right at the beginning there. You said a lot of people don't know what their failure mode is. And that's because there's not a lot of good standard definitions for it because it depends on your context of your organization. Like if you're an operator of equipment, your failure modes are going to be different than if you're the service company and what constitute a failure. And, and so it's important to really think about that definition um, as an operator of equipment and, and maintenance on a, on a mine site. I like to look at ISO 14224 as this is what, and, and that's going to tell me what the definition of failure mode is and help me build that out. But a lot of people see that and look at that failure mode and think, well, that's not good enough resolution. And it's, it's depends what you want to get out of it. So um, like I like 14224 because it has essentially three different levels. You have your failure mode, which is easy to understand for everybody. Then you have, and, and something an operator could, uh, could identify. And that's what's important is it takes a lot of the burden off maintenance people to go in and, and re-describe things because an operator can say, this engine has low power. This engine has an oil leak, like very broad, obvious things. And then you look at your failure mechanism, which is what you've used or how you fixed that failure, you know, replaced head gasket or replaced something, right? Um, and then it's the root cause, which is where the reliability people would need to live more so in there. In, in that root cause, you do your root cause analysis and, and that tells you really why it failed. Takes that failure mode and you add granularity into it, right? Yeah, definitely. And, and we miss that 
I've seen so many organizations that want to go so deep and look at what are the potential root causes of this failure before and, and call that your failure mode and not just look at kind of what that higher level thing is. So it, it's, um, I don't, I don't know where your thoughts are on that and how granular you go. Like obviously you in a more consulting role within, within maintenance and reliability are going to have different asks from different people on the resolution that they want. I guess we've sort of taken perhaps two different approaches to this. So depending on the depth of analysis, the depth of analysis has, has been reliant on I guess, of course, the first being time, how much time you have and how much data is available and the criticality of the assets. If it's not a very critical asset, right, it's that the effect of the failure of that asset is not going to be significant or there's no safety impact, there's no environmental impact and doesn't impact production process as such. You could, as you said, do a high level filmmaker, just, you know, base it on the failure modes and just derive the failure causes from there rather than looking at the lowest replaceable units. And as the criticality of an asset increases and has the consequences increase, you would really want to go down onto the lowest replaceable unit and trying to understand um, what those failure modes are. Now, when I say uh, the lowest replaceable unit, I have seen uh, for me because where people have gone down to the level of bolts. Now, I think that is excessive. You don't want to go down to the level of a bolt, right? You could just leave it up to vibration or misalignment or something of that nature and just leave it at that. I think that is still good enough. Uh, but in saying that, as I said, um, understanding the criticality and the down, downturn effects is extremely critical in deciding what approach you want to take for the assets and what level of granularity you want to have for the Femiga that you want to perform the asset on. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you said it right there, the criticality is what's most important and kind of defines your resolution. I, I definitely agree with that because it's, and that's the, the C in the Famica, right? It's, and, and that's something that's missed a lot too. And, and going back to the fundamentals bit that we're missing is what's the criticality of our assets? How many people actually understand what our criticality is? You, you, again, picking on mine sites because uh, that's, where, that's where I work, but you know, you always hear the trucks, the shovels, those are the most important assets in the mine or in the plant, it's the crusher, it's, it's, and then if you do a criticality analysis, you start to realize that it's other things like, um, you know, you, I live in Canada, your operation can't run as well if you don't have graders. So graders all of a sudden are becoming a much more critical, uh, critical machine on a mine site. And, but that is lost because there's no formal criticality analysis and no formal risk registry or risk matrix to categorize that criticality. And so I've seen a lot of reliability engineers, myself included, go to an organization and say, oh, you don't have a risk matrix? Okay, I'll make one. But it's not bought in. And people don't understand what risk is. And so you, you show this data and it's, it, people look at it and, and they just don't understand. And so, um, yeah, so, so I guess what I'm trying to say is that that criticality piece that you mentioned there is hugely important. Um, and it, what do you see missing from the criticality? Like uh, I said, my little bit there, but what else do you see is often missing from criticality? Um, so some of the criticality or the risk mat mat matrices, <laughs> sorry, I couldn't get that word right. Um, <laughs> 
is I think the lack of granularity. Sometimes they keep it limited to financial impact, uh, impact to production, that's it. And they don't look at anything else. Uh, there's impact to the environment. There could be a safety impact as well to it, depending on what industry you're in. Uh, I think the ISO, I think it's 31,000 risk um, management standard, which does have a lot of this information and they do talk about what are the appropriate uh, categories that you should evaluate and the kind of um, the level of uh, that you need to have, whether something is minor, major, catastrophic and, and so on and so forth. But uh, that I have found that, so I've also spent some time working in the rail sector where it's it's become very subjective and it's, it's led to a number of arguments between people because one person might think, no, that, that, is, that failure model, that failure mechanism is, um, is minor. Another one would say that's major. And then you would have, these, have this conflict of, well, what is it, right? And both are fairly high, uh, well, high uh, on the hierarchy. Uh, but then you uh, get stuck at this point, whether it's, it's high risk or is it just um, very high risk, right? So I've found that, uh, you could use the, the qualitative approach or a quantitative approach. But again, taking the quantitative uh, approach can become extremely uh, data intensive because you need so much information and there's so much uh, input that has to go in in order to accurately define what that risk is in, in terms of a number. But I guess if you want to keep it simplistic in nature or more uh, easily understandable, I think you know, keeping it qualitative is the way to go. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> awesome. You could do uh, a model failure model. Um, uh, I think that's what it is. Model criticality analysis. You have these different numbers, and then you come up with the final number. It it gets really complex very fast. Yeah. The now, so we've talked about criticality. We've talked about Famicas, and a lot of that is boiling down to RCM. Mm -hmm. And. RCM, some people love it, some people just absolutely hate it. But at the, the end of the day, that is the fundamental that we're trying to do is that piecing together all of this information that we have, all of what we can glean from other people um, and developing our maintenance plans that are gonna give it, allow our assets to run in the best possible way. Um, now, when you take on an RCM or when you start talking about RCM, I've kind of stopped calling it RCM. I talk more about the Famicas and the risk and, and controls is how I describe it. I don't say RCM because it's, it's got that, again, people don't like it now, but it is at the end of the day, that's what we're trying to do. And so when you're thinking about RCM and some of the RCM, more maybe more formal RCM programs that you've seen put in, what are what's been missing from them and why don't they succeed? Because a lot of RCM programs really don't succeed. I think the biggest reason they don't succeed is not having the right people in your workshops or the kind of people that you have. You just have one representative from, I guess, from each department. We've done an RCM where we just had one person from production and one person from maintenance. And we are expecting them to have the knowledge of uh, all aspects and the different, I guess. Now, you've got to also take into account the bias that they might have for certain things, right? So not having the right stakeholders and having the, uh, 
the input of a large population leads you to uh, incorrect conclusions uh, from your RCM. So as so by not having the right people, your, the process of RCM or the intent of the RCM is to have the most effective and efficient task to mitigate uh, a failure mode, right? That you, you defeat that by not having the right people in the room. Uh, that one being, and the moment you, you say RCM, the first thing that even comes to my head as an engineer, because that has been drilled in us uh, so much from textbooks that RCM is a time intensive process and a resource intensive process. But nobody talks about the positive of it that RCM can fix your asset or performance of your asset for years to come, right? Uh, and the return on investment can be really high. That is not something that people talk about that often. It's only over the recent years where the likes of Bobatino uh, have started uh, and uh, putting up RCM. There's, diff there's different variations, RCM2, RCM3.0, right? Uh, um, that then it needs to be uh, discussed more openly and, and uh, just to say, hey, this is what is really involved and these are the benefits of doing the RCM process. Don't look at it as a cost center or something that is just going to drain your resources. It is way more than that. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, a, frame, and it's a framework that you put the investment in and you get something out. And then you need to sustain. And, and I think that's where we miss a lot on RCM too, is we put a lot of investment up front, but then we don't invest in sustaining it and reiterating and taking when something fails that is different than what we saw in our RCM, understanding why that happened, what's the root cause of this, and then putting that information back into the RCM. And this goes back to your one of your comments about the CMMS, and this is what a CMMS can be utilized for, right? Is is closing that loop and making sure we that initial investment because it is time intensive, it is expensive. Arms is KPMG, all these companies that will do RCM are expensive, so you want to make sure it sustains. Yes, yeah. and we always tell of. Uh, uh, any organization that this is not a set it and forget it process, that it's not just you do the RCM process once, that's it. You don't have to do it ever again, right? It has to be continuously evaluated. It is an iterative process and that's how you improve. It has to be that PDCA cycle that you do it once, you let it run for a few, a couple of whatever duration that you want it to, you gain additional information, you put that back in to see, you essentially validate what you've done in the past uh, and you evolve it and improve on it then. I think that is a, a what a lot of organizations fail to do. It's they all go in with, yes, we're going to start this new thing. We're going to do an RCM. They do it and then they start realizing, oh my God, it's taking far too long. And then they uh, uh, scrap it halfway through and say, yeah, we did whatever we had to. We are never going to do it again. It's, it's just they fail to see the value of these uh, methodologies. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, uh, we are running a little short on time. So, um, I do want to wrap things up a little bit, but before I do that, I do want to thank you for coming on. And I know we went through a lot of things and, and it kind of rapid fire order there. Each one deserves at least an hour, if not longer, oh, all on their own. And, um, you know, for anybody listening, by all means, get in touch with, uh, Akshay or myself and, and happy to have more of these conversations. Um, now before we close out, I mentioned at the beginning that you have your own podcast now. Um, what is it called and where can people find it? 
Right, so my podcast is called Reliability It Matters, and you can find the podcast on Spotify um, uh, for the time being. It's only on Spotify, uh, and I do keep posting updates whenever a new episode is released on LinkedIn, so you can find um, find it on, on LinkedIn as well, the link to the podcast episode, and if you have any questions, feel free to uh, give me a shout out, send me a message, I'll be more than happy to um, help you out. Excellent, and if you, you can't get a hold of him, or if you've lost his number, you can always email us at maintenance at gmail.com and we can get you in touch. Um, and finally, do you have outside of your podcast, is there anything else coming up, any speaking engagements um, where people can find you? Uh, well, <laughs> it's funny you say that. It's with the, with the new variant of, of COVID again. Things have started looking a bit certain here in Australia. Uh, we do have uh, a major, a big, uh, asset management uh, council uh, presentation uh, coming up soon, but I'm not sure if that will be held in person. It's coming in April, I think. Uh, we've just got to sort of sit tight and see, uh, watch that space on how everything goes uh, with this new variant, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. And and hopefully, it, hopefully, I haven't been to an in-person conference in, in far too long. They just started opening up and now things are questionable again it's quite frustrating <laughs> and um and lastly is there any any organizations or anything you'd like to give a shout out to uh well, well uh, kpmg uh for letting me do this and being very supportive of this uh of course my managers uh, they've been extremely supportive and have really been helpful one of my first guests was my was one of my managers at kpmg and he was the one who said you know what go ahead and do it um so yeah, that's been really great. Awesome. Yeah, well, thank you for your time, Akshay. I really appreciate Thanks it. So much, and we'll definitely have you back on the show sometime to uh, further some to. of these discussions.